Will you turn with me to John 17 and for the next three Lord's Day afternoons we'll be looking at the High Priestly Prayer from John chapter 17. Let's pray as we come to read God's Word. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, Amen. So John 17 and verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. The next three Lord's Day afternoons, Lord willing, we will consider John 17. John 17 is known as the high priestly prayer of the Lord, which is an apt description because it comes at the climax of his earthly ministry, on the eve of his betrayal, and as the shadow of the cross looms large. And at the moment of his supreme priestly sacrifice, as the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. This is the moment and it's preceded by this great prayer of preparation and consecration and intercession. It's one of the most sacred places in Holy Scripture where Jesus speaks to his Father. You might know from the Old Testament the work of the Levitical high priest who once a year entered the most holy place in the earthly temple and there he would pray first for himself and then would intercede for the people of God before making the atoning sacrifice. So here is the Lord Jesus, the antitype, the great, the true, the ultimate true high priest, to whom to which the, 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 the Levitical priesthood points us. He prays in verse 19, for their sake, for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. And he prays in the first part of the prayer for himself, in preparation for the climatic sacrifice that he must shortly offer. And then having prayed for himself, he pours out his soul on behalf of those for whom he will shortly give his life. Now it's a remarkable fact that while the Gospel accounts tell us that prayer was a constant, vigorous component of our Lord's daily routine, we actually don't have many places, much record of the content of his prayers. So this prayer, offered as it was on the very precipice, the very eve of Calvary, gives us real extensive insight into how and what Jesus prayed for and it deserves our special attention. 
And here we see Jesus' particular burdens. These are the Lord Jesus' preoccupations. These are his great overriding concerns as he heads to the cross. What weighed on his mind, what occupied his heart. And surely, if these were our Saviour's priorities, we must evaluate our own in light of them. If these are the priorities of our Lord Jesus, our own should align with his. A very brief glance at the chapter tells you that it divides into three unequal sections, and each has a particular focus. So today, verses 1 to 5, is a prayer for glorification. The Lord Jesus prays that the Father would glorify him in the work he's about to complete. Then verses 6 through 19, look at next week, Lord willing, we have a prayer for sanctification, not for Christ, obviously, but for his people. He prays for the preservation, the holiness, the sanctification of his disciples. And in verses 20 through 26 is a prayer for unification. The Lord's concern, desire, is that the church across the ages and around the world might be one, just as he and his Father in heaven are one. So they're the three priorities that our Lord gives expression to. The glory of Christ the holiness of believers, the unity of the church. The glory of Christ, the holiness of believers, and the unity of the church. And as we think and desire about to follow Jesus faithfully, these must be our priorities too. The glory of Christ, the holiness of believers, the unity of the church. And this afternoon, we're giving our attention to verses 1 to 5, and the prayer for glorification with which John 17 opens. Glory dominates this part of the prayer. It brackets what we read. In verse 1, it starts with, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And then verse 5, the last verse of what we read, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. This is a prayer for glorification, the glorification of the Son, the Lord Jesus. And I want us for a few moments this afternoon to see how Jesus develops this theme of glory in three tenses, because he speaks about the glory of the Son in the present, in verse 1. He speaks about the glory of the Son in the past, verses 2 to 5. And then in verse 5, he talks about the glory of the Son yet to come in the future. So as the Lord Jesus contemplates the ordeal of the cross, and he consecrates and rededicates himself for that great work of redemption, his focus is on the glory of God in the exaltation of his Son. Which is why we need these verses so very badly today. This is a vital corrective to the self-absorption, the self-centeredness that dominates our culture and our lives. And our greatest need in the church is to look away from self and to fill our gaze with the glory of the Lord Jesus, which is the dominant thought of these five verses. First of all, then, the glory of the Son in the present. I came across a story I 
did that one thing, I Googled it, and on a guy called Richard Leroy Walters. And he was a homeless man. Richard Leroy Walters was a homeless man who dwelt rough, who slept on the streets of Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona. And he was a homeless man who ate all of his meals at the local hospital. He used the telephone at the centre, for which they didn't know what he was doing, but he used the telephone at the centre, and he had no family, and he lived a reserved, largely solitary existence. If you saw him, you would have felt pity for him. But you wouldn't have seen anything particularly unusual or special in Richard Leroy Walters to distinguish him from any other homeless man sleeping rough on the streets of Phoenix, Arizona. So you can imagine the astonishment when the Catholic mission that Walters used received six figures, millions of pounds, from his, from his estate when he died. And those phone calls had been made to his stockbrokers, apparently, when he was using the phone. He was a multi-millionaire. And what you saw was not what you got with Richard Leroy Walters. And part of what strikes me as I read through the first part of John 17 is that when you come to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, what you see is not what you get. It's an imperfect illustration, forgive the illustration. But when you look at the cross, what you see is not what you get. I've often thought about that, I've often thought about that, that the last, you know, that the world thought that they had got rid of Jesus. What do you see when you look at the cross? A picture of defeat? Of suffering? Of helplessness? Of shame? If you're a casual spectator passing by on the day our Lord was crucified, you would not likely have picked out Jesus and his sufferings as in any way different from those around the two thieves crucified either side of him. Perhaps in your time you'd have seen many hapless victims of the Roman torture machine hanged on a gibbet, lying in the roads, if you, you know, if you know your history of the ancient Mediterranean world. The roads were lined with crosses. Nothing would have singled Jesus out from the rest. But like that imperfect picture, the unrecognised, homeless, multi-millionaire Richard Leroy Walters, the very last thing any of us would see, looking at Jesus hanging between two thieves at Gol Golgotha, Naked and in agony, the last thing you'd see is glory. But look at the text. It is exactly the category, glory, that Jesus thinks best fits the cross. The glory of the Son. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And you remember, we've looked at it before, that many times in John's Gospel, Jesus has said, you know, the hour has not yet come, if you remember. The hour has not yet come. John 2, verse 4, when Jesus was speaking to his mother, he said, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Or in chapter 7, verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But from John 12, 
middle of John 12 onwards, the focus of the narrative in John's Gospel shifts. It turns to Calvary, toward the cross. And from then on, Jesus begins to say, my hour has come. And we've looked at that expression, what that means. The hour has come. I think Don Carson summarises it very well when he says it refers to his death on the cross and the exaltation bound up with it or the consequences deriving from it. So the hour is that moment ordained by God in which our Saviour must secure our redemption by the sacrifice of his precious life. And over and over in John we are told the hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. But now we are told and right and he prays right on the eve of his suffering, Father, the hour has now come. And as our Lord contemplates the arrival of the hour, the hour of unspeakable suffering, what is it that he wants the Father to do for him? What would you want the Father to do for you? You've been conscious that there is an appointed hour throughout the course of your life. And you've seen that hour approaching day after day. And now that hour has come. And you know what that hour must hold for you. Terrible agony of body, mind and soul, grief and loss. As those you love desert you and abandon you, betray you. What would you ask the Father to do for you? Would you ask him to deliver you from this hour? Sustain you, perhaps, in the midst of the hour? What did Jesus pray? Father, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And you see, that is what the cross is for Jesus. It is the venue for the unveiling of glory. One of the catechisms of the church talks about Jesus' life in terms of his estates of humiliation and exaltation. And it asks, for example, wherein consists Christ's exaltation? And the answer is Christ's exaltation consists in his rising again from the dead on the third day, in ascending up into heaven, in sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and in coming to judge the world at the last day. That is, we, we, we get so used to the truth of these things, but that's glorious. That is glorious, and there is an important sense in which for Jesus, the cross belongs not only to his humiliation, which is what the word he's talked about, but his exaltation. If you think about it here in the weakness and the agonies of Calvary, the glory of Christ is perhaps never more clearly seen to those who believe, because we see here the love of Christ for his Father. He's willing, he's glad to embrace the nightmare of suffering, even beneath which his soul must shortly be submerged in order to please his Father. And here we see Christ's great love for the world as he freely bears the full weight, the crushing burden of divine wrath for the sake 
and on behalf of his people. Here, his obedience is on display. That doesn't shrink back from going to such lengths as the cross to fulfil the will of God. Here we see the humanity of Christ. He bled. He cried out. He thirsted. He thirsted. He died. And we see the deity of Christ lending infinite value to mortal sufferings that he might pay an infinite debt. The debt that our sins, my sin, your sin, have incurred. Here we see Jesus, our prophet, in his suffering, revealing the Father's heart for sinners. Here we see Jesus as priest, offering himself on the altar to make atonement. And here we see him as king, doing battle with our, with our great enemy, his great enemy, the devil, and triumphing over him, making public spectacle of him at the cross, and thereby winning our deliverance. So at Calvary, the flame of love is kindled in the heart of believers. And it has engulfed the church in every nation and around the world in worship, praise, adoration for Jesus Christ. So we truly say the cross reveals the glory of the Son. We see Jesus in his beauty, in his majesty, in his love, in his grace, in his power, in his wisdom. Nowhere, nowhere more clearly than on the cross. So here, knowing that his hour had come, knowing that at this moment as he prays, he stood on the lip of the crucible of untold agony. And remarkably, he does not pray for glory instead of the cross. He prays that the Father might glorify him by the cross. And in, his, in the cross, he prays the Father would bring him to Calvary because that is where his glory would be revealed. So the cross is glorious. The cross is where the glory of Christ is, can be seen and known. Sometimes I, I've heard it myself and I sometimes see it, the, the complaint from churchgoers who've been impatient with a constant emphasis on the gospel message because they think that they have the sufferings the death and resurrection of Christ nailed down. They think that they know everything there is to know about it, apparently. That's the basics. It's the ABCs of the Christian life. The cross, that's what you need to know when you become a Christian, and then we need to move on. We're moving on to the deeper things. But Jesus' prayer contradicts that attitude, because there's no ocean more mysterious in its depths than the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You will never exhaust the riches of the cross. If you want to find inexhaustible glory, that's where you need to devote attention. And I was just struck this week, when did I last meditate on the cross? Just sit for an hour or two and meditate on the cross. Can you find enough in the cross to hold your attention? for more than just a few moments. Can you see the glory of the cross? We haven't come to grips with the teaching of, we can't, have not yet come to the grips with the teaching of John 17. 
if we can't, with any sense of wonder, lose ourselves in contemplation of the glory of Jesus Christ revealed as he gave himself for us at Calvary. Never ever take your eyes from it. It's endlessly fascinating, it's endlessly beautiful, and it's unfailingly satisfying. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's rightly been said, it's the centre of eternity. The Lord Jesus Christ. There's a book you know, by John Stott, The Cross of Jesus, The Cross of Christ, which is well worth reading and reading again. He prays for glory in the present, right now, now that the hour has come. And secondly, the glory of the Son in the past. Look at what we learn about the glory of the Son in the past. Look at verse 4 with me. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Now, we are entering into nosebleed territory here because it's mystery, it's sublime mystery. We've been told that the glory that shines at the cross is a glory that shines in eternity. And we know from the Gospel records, do we not, that Jesus was conscious, that he was a man, with human, a human being with ordinary limitations of mind and body that that involved. He was one of us with a true body and a reasonable soul. But now we get to these five verses of John 17, we see he's also conscious of being the eternal Son of God. According to the text, Jesus knew his own pre-existence. He knew that before time or space, before there was creation, he dwelt in the loving fellowship of the Blessed Trinity. Verse 5 says that Jesus enjoyed, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In the unity of the Holy Spirit, Three persons in one. God the same in substance, equal in power and glory. But the text actually says he knew more than that. Not just that he had dwelt forever in the bliss of Trinitarian fellowship, but that he knew of an arrangement between the persons of the Trinity before time. You see that note sounding in the text? Theologians typically refer to it as the covenant of redemption. Jesus says, the work you gave me to do. He was given authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So understand what we have been told. The Son has been given a definite people by God the Father, chosen out of a mass of fallen humanity upon whom the Son must bestow eternal life. By means of the whole course of his earthly obedience, he's to obey and bleed and die. Specifically for the salvation of the elect people of God. And here the Lord Jesus tells his Father that the climatic hour has having arrived. He has completed the task. He has fulfilled the terms of the covenant of redemption. He kept God's law. He fulfilled in every precept, proclaimed God's truth, inaugurated God's kingdom. Throughout his life, our Lord Jesus has borne our sins, endured the judgment of God in the many miseries that he suffered. 
And now he's crowning it all and given his life in the climatic sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God in our place for our sake. Every now and again, again, we sometimes hear the idea that the Lord Jesus came to make the Father love us. And the danger with that is that the Father is pictured as rather aloof, cold, an austere judge perhaps, with hardly a thought spared for us, unapproachable. Maybe for some, we know that that's how our earthly fathers were and behaved towards us. So it is hard sometimes to conceive of God the Father in any other way. He must be cold and aloof with very little time for you. You have this idea of a distant, unfeeling father. But then the son comes, and unlike the father, he loves us. He's tender towards us. And the thought goes, he suffers for us. He dies in our place. He pays our penalty. He meets all the exacting demands of the father. And it's almost this, the thought is, he manages to pry a modicum of mercy from the Father's unwilling, reluctant hands. And the temptation can go that if the Father loves us at all, it's because Jesus persuaded him to love us. But can you see how far that is from Jesus' understanding of his work? He was sent on mission by the Father in eternity and given a number of people to save for whom the Son obeyed and bled and gave his life. It was the love of the Father that gave the Son for you in the first place. The electing love of God that entrusted you into the Son's hands and of of all whom the Father has given him, he loses none. The Lord Jesus didn't need to persuade God the Father to love you. The Lord Jesus is the display of the love of God for you. So you have believer in Jesus. You have always been loved. From eternity to eternity, you are beloved. Glory in the present, glory in the past, and the glory of the Son in the future. Then Jesus prays all of this, conscious of glory for the Son yet to come, still in the future, verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He contemplates what awaits him the other side of the cross, the other side of the empty tomb, and he prays for exaltation in his Father's presence. That was the promise, you see, made to him by the Father. In the covenant made with him in eternity, he would be highly exalted and given the name above every name. The Father told the Son, in the words of Psalm 2, verse 8, Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I shall make your enemies your footstool. This is the glory of the exalted Son, for which he now prays. And do you see how it sweeps from eternity through history? through the cross, through the empty tomb, up into glory yet ahead. At every stage of the journey, we have another another phrase of the glory of the Son who glorifies the Father. There is pre-incarnate glory. There is obedient, 
incarnate, suffering, crucified glory. And then there is exalted, triumphant, ascended glory. Pre-incarnate, obedient, incarnate, crucified, exalted, triumphant, ascended. And before we finish, we need to see what stands at the very centre of glory. Right at the heart of the passage. You see what the glorification of the Son in each of these ways produces. You see what it is for. Look at verses 2 and 3. Since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It belongs, you see, to the glory of the Son to rescue sinners. The Son is glorified in your deliverance. In showering mercy on us. When we do not think we deserve mercy. He came so that you can know God in and through Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Understand, please, that being a Christian is not a matter of getting your doctrine right. That's really important. But that doesn't make you a Christian. It's not correctly understanding the biblical teaching about who God is, knowing about God. What happens when you become a Christian? The Lord Jesus brings you into fellowship personally, directly, really, truly, vitally with the living God himself. Eternal life is this, that you know God. You come to know him. You know him in Jesus Christ. The poet Alexander Pope once said, Know then thyself, presume not God to scan the proper study of mankind is man. And you see how Jesus says the opposite in these verses we've been looking at. This is eternal life to know you. This is life to know God. This is the secret of eternal life to know God, which is the gift. That is the gift of the glorious Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone can give that to you, that you would know God. We, we live in a narcissistic age. There's absorbed people are absorbed with themselves. With our feelings, our pleasures, our needs, our wants. I've often thought that, you know, I remember, I think it was Billy Graham once I read, spoke about in the 50s or 60s, you could walk around and call man to repent and, and repent of their sin and come to Christ. Even that would be argued today. Because everything that has gone wrong with somebody is someone else's fault. I messed up because of the way I was brought up. I messed up because have you seen my dad? No, we're sinners. But we live in a narcissistic age which denies the very truth of who we are. But the truth is, the further and further we delve into ourselves, the less satisfied we become. And John 17, 1-5 is the antidote that points us away from self. It takes you to this glorious vista so that taking it in you forget everything else and you're lost in wonder at its beauty. I sometimes, I love the scenery around here. I, I can never tire of it. You can stand and you can see Skidder or you can stand and you can see Grisdale Pike. You can see the whole beautiful mountains. But there's something glorious about going to Norfolk 
and just seen the vista of the sky. Just the big, big sky. And you, you, you forget everything else. And you're lost in the wonder at the one who created it. Yeah. Well, John 17, 1 to 5 is a vista that shows you the glory of Christ. He reigns, not as aloof and distant. He reigns in glory to give, to bestow that knowledge of God that is life to all who will come to him, to all whom the Father has given to him. So it's time to lift our eyes from self. To look away, to look away from self and to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. There alone is life. There alone is satisfaction. There alone is joy. Because there is glory unveiled. Jesus came to, so that we might know God. May you be encouraged and may the Lord bless the word for his glory and for our good. Amen.